in this in-between week. The rush of Christmas, the celebration of New Year, and here we are in between somewhere. It's good to be with you and sharing with you. And let's just give thanks for God's gracious giving to us. Father, we are here this morning because of your grace. We live and breathe because of your grace. We have capacity to earn because of your grace. We have capacity to be generous towards others because of your grace. We bring these gifts and ask that they will be used to encourage the work of the kingdom inside this place and living out into the community. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You deserve, you deserve two little words that TV advertisers have grabbed onto to advertise a whole range of things. You deserve younger looking skin. You deserve pampered holidays. You, this is the smile you deserve and it just goes on. There's a legal firm that's advertising at the moment. Get the results you deserve. The Sydney Morning Herald's motto is this, we break the stories you deserve to hear. Probably all began with McDonald's back in the 70s or the 80s. Do you remember? No, you were too young. You deserve a break today. And I say, give me a break if I've got to go inside McDonald's. I discovered on YouTube a couple of years ago an ad by WA Government, Road Safety Commission, which I found brilliant. I was going to show it, all our young kids are gone, because it does show alcohol being drunk, so I decided not to, because I could get access to it. But I'll give you the gist of it. After a day's hard work, you deserve it and it shows young blokes in the office having a drink when you're catching up with mates the social occasion you deserve it and a whole lot of young women drinking grabbing a bite with the missus you deserve it and here we go again and then the last frame and pictures of this is a young person with their head out the window of a car being breathalyzed. But drive after a few and you deserve it. You didn't get it like me. You deserve to be over 0.05 if that's how you're going to... Oh, okay. These two words, you deserve it, have crept into everyday conversations. You deserve better than that. I've actually heard um, people saying to a young woman in a marriage that's breaking down, you deserve better than him and vice versa. You deserve a pay rise. You deserve a holiday. You deserve to be happy. We just go on. It's become everyday common language. And many social commentators for many years have been saying that it's leading to a society that is entitled, believes it's entitled. It's my right to have because I deserve it. And when we don't get what we feel we deserve, we are entitled to, we cry out, that's not fair. 
The words I cried out sitting in a doctor's surgery when I was diagnosed with cancer and diabetes on the same day. That's, I didn't cry it out to him, I got out of the surgery. That's not fair. And that thought interrupted my thinking and my living for at least two or three or four weeks as I tried to get my head around what was going. And I mean it constantly interrupted. It had interrupted my sleep. It had interrupted preparation for stuff. I wasn't doing well. And I was saying it's not fair because I exercised very regularly and strenuously. I ate and have eaten healthy food all my life from both my mother and from my wife Sharon. I get my sleep. And when there was pressure on, I would take time just to absorb that pressure and know what to do with it. What are you up to, God? Not that I was blaming him for what had happened. But I was saying, you could have stopped me getting these life-threatening illnesses. And I'd look around the streets as I walked around and what about, there's a couple sitting down at that table in the coffee shop. They, they're at least over 80 and they've got fags hanging out of their mouth. What about them? And those who look like they didn't diet and didn't exercise and didn't care much, what about them? Is this, I said to God, how you reward someone who's given you so much hard work in kingdom and gospel work? And when I was on one of my morning walks, and I keep telling you my morning walks are with Jesus, these words entered the picture. Why not me? What made me so special that I could avoid these things? What made me so different? What made me so entitled that I should be spared? The little jingle, you deserve better, had bit. And it was my jingle. I stopped being afflicted with plom, poor little old me disease from that moment and started using my energy to tackle the real issues I was facing. You deserve. Too powerful, but I think very unhelpful words. We've been in John 1 two or three times in this Christmas period as it's turned out. We're there again this morning just to start with. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us full of grace and truth, verse 14. And then verse 17. This is where we are. From the fullness of his grace, the grace of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we have all, all, received blessing after one blessing after another is actually literally in the original language we have all received grace upon grace gift upon gift and this morning i want to put that phrase grace upon grace alongside that you deserve and so um, I, I was reading these words many years ago. Christian counsellor and author David Siemens. Many of you may have been helped by his books dealing with emotional stuff in our lives. Very, very good. And he said this towards the end of his career and he died in 2006. Many years ago I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. We're evangelical Christians. Most emotional problems are caused by this, the failure to understand and receive and live in 
the unconditional love, forgiveness and grace of our God. The failure to accept and live in it. That's the cause. That's one cause. The second is this, the failure to give out that unconditional love, grace, forgiveness to other people. What causes so much emotional problems in the lives of Christians, says David Siemens? The failure to actually receive and give out grace. He went on and said this, We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace. We sang one this morning. But that's not the way we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated the level of our emotions. Ouch! That to me is really penetrating stuff. If we as believers are like this with grace, then surprise, surprise that grace is a word our culture doesn't understand well either. We say grace before a meal, maybe, I don't know, it's getting out of fashion. What's that all about? It's about recognising that behind everything we've done, there's someone much greater who's gifted us. There's no such thing as a free lunch, is a term we have. You know, this time of the year we have advertised everywhere, you know, 36 months, 48 months interest free. Come on. Pull the other one. Who pays for that? It's absorbed into the price of the goods. Don't get sucked in. I went into a company one day. I had the best price I could find on a particular item and asked them to show me their range and then to the one I wanted and they said, this is the price. I said, but I want to pay you cash. So can't you discount that because you say your terms are 48 months interest free. I'm not paying someone else's interest. And he said, there's no way we can break that deal. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So I went back to where I got a much better price. You get what you deserve is a motto around society. You want love? Earn it. Do unto others before they do unto you. Get in first. A pastor was once overheard saying to a child, God loves good little boys. Anyone tell me what's wrong with that? Good. I've got to be good. Well, there is no such thing as a good little boy. There by the grace of God go I. But the condition of God's love is what? Being good. We use those phrases. Be a good little girl and God will look out. I had people in congregations I had to stop saying, be careful what you do around the pastor because he'll... And I'm thinking, hang on a minute. What are we doing? Can you see how this stuff just slips into our life? What is grace? Here it is simply. Grace means God's love in action towards mankind, that's you and I, who merited opposite of love it's God's loving action towards us who merited the opposite of love it's the unearned love of God and a particular expression is God moving heaven and earth to save sinners 
who could not lift a finger to save themselves. We say God's riches at Christ's expense, grace. But that's just a particular expression of the incredible overarching grace of God. How are we going to look at this? Let's look at a couple of parables. And the one, one of them is the one that uh, Jess read to us. The story of a farmer who hired people to work in his vineyards. And the people he hired were the unemployed of the day. And the unemployed of the day would come down to the town centre. And they would beg to get a job. Because if they didn't get a day's work, there was no food on the table. Because there's no unemployment benefits, etc., etc., like we had. So the farmer comes down at 6am in the morning and gets his first group of workers and off they go. Then it's 9am in the morning, he still needs more at smoko time, so he gets some more. He comes back at lunchtime and gets some more. He gets some more at 3 in the afternoon, then he comes back at 5 because he still needs more in his vineyard. Just an hour before knock-off time. And the last ones he picks were probably rejected by other employers during that day. Everyone seemed happy in the vineyard until pay time came. Then the hard workers who'd worked 12 hours since sunrise under a blazing hot sun learned that the sweatless upstarts who had put in barely an hour's work would receive exactly the same pay, a denarius. And that was a fair pay for a day's wage. The story's clear but unexpected. You see, we take it for granted that harder work deserves a greater payment. And this employer operates on a less conventional basis. And as a reader, I instinctively sympathise with those aggrieved workers who worked all day long, 12 hours in the hot sun, but in the end only received the same wages as those who joined the crew at 5 o'clock. That's not fair. And I wonder if you identified with them too when you were listening to the reading. Here, it's, here it is in verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And the workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. Now the boss had said to them, I'll give you a fair pay. That's all he said to them. So they received a denarius. That was pretty extravagant so that um so when they when those came who were hired first they expected to receive more but each of them also received only a denarius and that was what they agreed to the six o'clock workers said yes boss shook hands and said we agree pay us a denarius that's fair so they got what they agreed to when they received it, they began to grumble against the landover. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have been borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. That's not fair. And to the letter of the law, though, no one was cheated. They'd agreed to a denarius. The rest, the boss had said, I'll pay you. Why do we feel that there's something wrong with this? Because we cannot detach ourselves from the ruling convention that rewards should be proportionate to the services rendered. When one man is rewarded far in excess of what, he's, uh, what has been earned, while another receives only the bare sum agreed, we detect 
unfair discrimination. Any union leader worth their salt would protest at such employment practices. Anyone who took this parable as a practical basis for employment would soon be out of business. And this is the punchline. The kingdom of heaven does not operate like they expected. It does not operate on the basis of commercial convention. God rules by grace and grace alone and not by what we deserve. Can you see now where we're in conflict with the you deserve of today's society? Because God doesn't give that way. He doesn't rule. He doesn't give grace by what we earn and he doesn't give it in proportion to our human effort. The God who lavishly clothes the flowers of the field and the birds of the air delights to give his servants far more than they could ever deserve from him. That's the point of this parable. Have you noticed many of the sunsets we've been having the last three or four weeks? There's been some amazing sunsets. What's that? What does it do to you in here? It feels really good. Why? Because that's God's grace. And anyone can see it. What, what does the scriptures tell us? God reigns on the just and the unjust. He gives sun to the just and the unjust. It's got nothing to do with deserving or earning. It is just God. What about the good experiences you've just had over this Christmas season? Love, family, friends, gifts, flood, joy, faith and a whole lot of other stuff. It's the wonderful gifts of a wonderful God. Not something you earned. The very natural disappointment and sense of unfairness of the 6am workers helps us, the readers, to re-examine how far our reactions are still governed by our ideals of deserving rather than by the uncalculating generosity of the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom in which first are last and the last are first, there is no room for envious comparisons. In 1984, um, Sharon's brother was getting married in America to um, his American wife, or she wasn't quite yet fiancé. They met in the bunkers in Beirut doing mission work. And there was the wedding and we looked at each other and said, we can't afford to go. It's just not a hope at that stage in our life. But we said, and a few friends said, are you going to the wedding? And we just said, uh, don't think so. But we said, we're trying to get Sharon there by any means we can. So that was about seven or eight months before the wedding. To cut a long story short, we were basically gifted the trip to America by a whole lot of sources. Both of us went to that wedding. It was important because we fathered um, Grant through his teenage years after his dad died. We, we fathered him as a young couple. So it was important that we were there. So this whole thing was graced to us, gifted to us. And we had returned home and, you know, people were excited to be sharing in what had happened for us. And one day um, Sharon was sharing the story with a 
Christian woman from another church in uh, the, the district where we were living in, just asking her a whole lot of questions about the trip and how it went and how we got there and all that kind of stuff. And Sharon ended up having to tell her the whole story about the gifting and gracing of God. I knew God had favourites. Ever done it? That means you're measuring God's grace by earning and deserving. Why did they get that and not me? Well, like I said, why didn't they get cancer and diabetes and not me? woman actually went on to say we work incredibly hard on our farm both of us we can't leave the farm we need to be here all the parable is really worth pondering let me ask you this question why would god use a little known shepherd boy from a little unknown place to be israel's king Why would God then take the fruit of the adulterous relationship of that king and give to Solomon, the son of that adulterous relationship, an extra measure of wisdom? Why? Why would Jesus mix up with the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the drop out of his day and call them to be his followers? Why? And why would he say to an undeserving thief on a cross, come follow me? Jesus' parable of the workers and their grossly unfair paychecks confronts this scandal head on. The parable is all about grace and grace, grace cannot be calculated like a day's wages. Grace is not about finishing last or first. It's not even about counting. We receive grace as a gift from God, not as something we toil to earn. The discontent of the full day workers arose from the scandalous mathematics of grace. Hear this. God dispenses gifts, not wages. From the fullness of his grace, we have all, all, all received grace upon grace. You see, if the world could have been saved by good bookkeeping, it would have been saved by Moses and the law, not by Jesus. In the realm of grace, the word deserved does not even appear or apply. You see, at the heart of the gospel is Father God, who deliberately surrenders to the passionate, irresistible power of his love for us. That is unfathomably mind-blowing and heart-opening. That is grace. The other parable is the parable of, that we call the prodigal son. Not telling it, not rereading. I trust you know it. If you don't, go to Luke 15 and read it. Luke 15, 11 to 32. It's actually the parable of the waiting father and it's all about grace to the undeserving, isn't it? The kid gets his inheritance, runs off, gets rid of the whole lot, 
down and out, comes home, father runs out to greet him, wraps his arms around his pig-smelling son and throws a party for him, killing the fatted calf and welcomes him home and says, home, son. But lurking in the background is the elder brother who is scandalised by the celebration party that the generous father throws for his wayward son returned. The mathematics of grace is not working out as this elder brother thought because he says, hang on, I've been here sla it's literally slaving for you all this time. And you've never thrown a party for me and now look what you're doing for him. The reprobate. It's scandalous. What are you doing, Dad? I'm here all the time, says Dad. You know what? I used to identify with this self-righteous resentment of the father's generosity. I found it very hard to relax in the Father's love because it seemed so random. It was like that elder son working hard for love. Praise God that I've learnt to relax in the gracious love of God and I have to keep reminding myself to do that. But the story of the waiting father ends at a poignant moment. We do not know if the oldest son will be able to relinquish his effort to earn grace and accept the father's invitation to go to the feast. We don't know. Is that a question you're facing right now? You don't actually know whether you're receiving the grace of God you're a bit like that elder brother I'm working hard for it and you've never given it to me I want you to imagine as I bring this to a close now I want you to imagine that God is thinking about you right now shut everything else out around you sit there God is thinking about you he is right now my question is this what do you assume God thinks and feels about you when you come to his mind? What do you assume God thinks and feels about you when you come to his mind? A surprising number of people say that the first thing they assume God feels is disappointment and frustration. Others assume that God feels disapproval or anger. Yet others assume that God feels disgust. I keep on failing. And you know what's going on here? People like that are convinced that it is their behaviour, their sinful behaviour, their failures and everything that God sees first. I'm sorry, he does not see them first. He sees you as made in his image. Why would he go to the cross? if that's not what he saw. And you see, when we think this about ourselves, don't we find it hard and painful to come to God? Because we think when he thinks of us that he's disgusted with us, that we're shameful, that we're useless, that we can't do it. That's what we think. 
regardless of what you have come to believe about God based on your life experiences, the truth is that when God thinks of you, there is only one extravagant thing in his heart, and that is faithful love and grace to you. As someone said, love swells in his heart and a smile comes to his face. I find it amazing that it was in that last song that we sing, God's smiling face. See, do we believe some of the stuff we sing or do we actually notice the words? That's a powerful line. It's a powerful line. God's bias toward us is strong, persistent and positive. The Christian God chooses to be known as love and that love pervades every aspect of God's relationship with us and that is grace. What a small God we would have if divine character was dependent on our behaviour. If God saw a failure and looked away. It's not the God I know. And I don't want to serve a God like that. The Christian God is simply not that fickle. John Piper wrote this, There is an aroma about God that can't be concealed. It's the aroma of love. We call him God is love. I want to leave you with these four definitions of grace. You've probably heard them all before. We actually sang two in the last song we sang. Thanks, Rose. Grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. So if you decide you need more of God's love, do 20 hours more devotions with God during the week. That will not make God love you more. Live the perfect life before God. That will not make God love you more. Go and learn all of the book of Colossians off by heart and say, here God won't change his love for you. You cannot make him love you more. Crusade for him. Do evangelism for him. That cannot make God love you more. There is no earning. There is no you deserve. Okay? We can't make God love us more. That's grace. And grace says we can, cannot do anything to make God love us less. Do you remember singing that a moment ago? Grace is God we can't make God love us less. No amount of racism, no amount of pride, no amount of pornography, no amount of adultery, murder, injustice, meanness, failure, shame can make God love us less. If I can turn God off and on like that, I'm in big trouble. Now, God, we can't make him love us more. We can't make him love us less. And he sees some of this stuff in our lives. In his love and grace, he'll work to make us more like Jesus. We've talked about that quite a bit here. That's what he does. Third thing, grace means that God, it's just another way of saying stuff. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. God cannot love any more. Then he loves us. Cannot. 
cannot. He gives us all he's got. All of it. And then this. Grace teaches us that God loves us because of who God is and not because of who we are. That is really important. Grace is God loves us because of who he is and not because of who we are. Oh, please, tuck these things away in your heart and blow into 2020 strong. Let's soak in his grace for a moment right now. Let's just pause. The active expression of God's love to those who merit the opposite. There is no you deserve. There is no earning. There is simply receiving, as David Seaman said. And then giving that to others. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father God, that you're not a fickle God. Thank you that you are love. That's who you are. And thank you that there's nothing we can do to make you love us more. We don't have to jump through a whole lot of hoops. And thank you that there's nothing that we can do to cause you to love us less. But thank you that you take us where we are when we receive that grace. And little by little you keep putting more and more grace into our lives so that we become like Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that there is an aroma about you, God, that can't be concealed. And it's the aroma of your love expressed in Jesus at this Christmas time. Help us to soak in it now and to step into the new year confident in your grace, your unearned favour. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.